You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, and welcome to the April edition of Heart Sounds. This is the monthly podcast where I tell you about some of the stories making waves on TCTMD in recent weeks and play you a few of the audio interviews our reporters conducted while writing their stories. April was a pretty quiet month on the meeting front. The only reporter we had on the road was Yael Maxwell, who was at the 2017 Fellows course. If you're a fellow in training or you know someone who is, make sure to check out the TCTMD Fellows Forum to find out about cardiology's up-and-comers. Happily, we were busy enough covering the regular cardiology news cycle. Let's look at a few highlights. Back in January, the FDA cleared the first high-sensitivity troponin assay for use in the United States. Word on the street is that it will be commercially available any day now. As Laura McEwen reported for TCTMD, a new meta-analysis confirms what other studies have hinted at in the past, namely that using these tests via a single blood draw in combination with ECG may rule out acute MI in up to 30% of patients with chest pain. Among those classified as low risk using the test in this meta-analysis, acute MI occurred in just 0.5%. For this analysis, John Pickering and colleagues combined data from 11 studies of more than 9,000 patients in 10 countries. As their paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine reported, 30% of this combined group had troponin levels less than 0.005 micrograms per liter. When troponin results were combined with ECG results, investigators had a pooled sensitivity estimate of almost 99%. Of the 1.3% of patients who died within 30 days in this meta-analysis, None were those identified as low risk by the HS troponin test. Laura called up Jim Januzzi to ask him what he thought of the study by Pickering and colleagues, and he made an interesting point. Januzzi noted that while the assay had been approved in other countries in order to measure troponin levels all the way down to blank, defined as 0.003 micrograms per liter, the US FDA has only approved the test down to 0.006 micrograms per liter. That's slightly higher than the cutoff used by Pickering and colleagues in this latest study. Here's Januzzi. These data are not by any stretch a surprise. I mean, we've seen results like this in several studies now. And this is, in fact, just a pooled analysis that once again recapitulates what we already know, which is that a very, very low troponin in a patient presenting with chest discomfort is highly likely to exclude myocardial infarction. You, you almost don't need the serial measurements. But this is a message I'd love to say. I understand the point of view that the FDA has approving troponin in this manner, but to the extent that we have abundant data pointing towards the value of this very low concentration measurement of highly sensitive troponin T, the inability for us to measure down to this concentration needs to be reconsidered. These days, not a month can go by without some fireworks related to the Absorb Bioresorbable Vascular Scaffold. In April, we learned that the use of the Absorb BVS in Europe will be restricted to experienced centers who are already participating in clinical registries effective May 31st. Abbott said the decision to restrict use is based on questions that arose following three-year results from the Absorb 2 study, which of course you can read all about on TCTMD. And remember, this European action comes hot on the heels of the FDA's safety alert in March, warning physicians that treating patients with the absorbed GTI-BVS may increase the risk of major cardiac events. Of course, there was plenty of other absorbed BVS news this month. Michael Reardon reported on an economic analysis of the device, presumably geared towards exploring concerns that we've reported on in the past, namely that this device might cost a lot more without delivering anything in the way of an edge. 
In the study published in Jack Cardiovascular Interventions, researchers showed that the absorbed BVS, compared to the Zion stent, is more expensive in terms of procedure-related and hospitalization costs. At one year, however, the difference between the two is estimated to be just $350. US Whether that cost goes up or down as time goes by remains an open question. It will depend on how long operators choose to extend dual antiplatelet therapy, given the recent scaffold thrombosis scares, and whether the long-term promise of a disappearing device pans out in the years to come. April also gave us a report from the Amsterdam Investigator-Initiated Absorb Strategy All-Comers Trial, AIDA, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The two-year results show that definite probable scaffold thrombosis occurred in 3.5% of patients who received the absorb device, with some events occurring beyond one year. By contrast, stent thrombosis was seen in just 0.9% who received the Zion stent. Unlike the two-year results from Absorb 3, however, AIDA investigators saw no significant differences in the risk of target vessel or target lesion failure among patients treated with the two devices. Mike spoke with the lead author on the AIDA paper, Joanna Rykruskowska, and asked her how she thinks the absorb stent should be used in light of recent data. I mean, I think I would uh, follow and I would agree with the FDA warning that was uh, issued uh, recently that you do have to be a little bit more cautious and careful to use this device. Um, I think certainly it's not a workhorse uh, stent mm-hmm. in your clinical practice. Um, you know, there are those concerns of higher uh, risks of scaffold thrombosis, and these have now repeated themselves in several trials. So I think if anyone uh, uses it, it should be perhaps in uh, fairly simple lesions um, with what we mentioned, very careful lesion preparation and perhaps OCT guidance at every step to just reduce the risks as much as possible. Um, And I think you have to also make sure that your patient that you choose uh, can take longer-term duct therapy. Two studies this month continued to chip away at the best use of coronary CTA in patients with suspected coronary disease. First up was a study out of Denmark that used a nationwide registry to examine hard clinical outcomes in patients with suspected CAD based on their initial testing. Investigators led by Mads Jorgensen found that in more than 86,000 outpatients with suspected stable CAD over a six-year period, 38% underwent initial testing using coronary CTA and the remainder via exercise ECG or nuclear stress testing. Moreover, risk of MI was lower through a median follow-up of 3.6 years following coronary CTA than it was using the other tests, 0.8% versus 1.5%. Mortality, however, was no different. Jorgensen, speaking with TCTMD's Todd Neal, said that he thinks the advantage for coronary CTA in terms of MI risk likely stems from changes in medical management that occurred after the evaluation. In other words, doctors may have been more likely to initiate things like statins and aspirin after seeing the CT scan. Todd ran that idea past James Min, who was not involved in the study. Here's Min. I think it is real, and I think what what you're seeing is that you're just getting um, enhanced medical therapy for you know, use of statins and antiplatelet agents, and that may be what explains it. I don't think it's causal inference can be you know delineated from this study, but certainly it would suggest that you know if you have almost twice the number of people taking statin medications based upon a diagnosis of visualized coronary atherosclerosis, that one might be able to appreciate that that might actually reduce MI. You know what we fail to do as clinicians is to try to identify this the subclinical coronary disease. We're so focused on 
identification of myocardial ischemia at a point where there's a high-grade stenosis that is slow-limiting. But the vast majority of myocardial infarctions occur in patients with non-high-grade stenoses, and now we have an anatomic test that is non-invasive and allows us to visualize that. And it seems clear from this paper that people are acting on it. I myself also covered a CTA story this month. This one looked at whether using fractional flow reserve derived from CTA might be a better gatekeeper than CTA alone in determining which patients might need to go on for invasive testing. Investigators led by Michael Liu zeroed in on PROMISE trial participants who were randomized to coronary CTA and subsequently underwent intracoronary angiography within 90 days. Sure enough, compared with CTA alone, FFRCT proved better at identifying patients who would go on to be revascularized or have a major adverse cardiac event. Have a listen to Lou. You know, I think with the results of the PROMISE trial and, and the Scott Hart trial, uh, you know, at least in my opinion, I, I think they've sort of established CT as a viable alternative uh, for the evaluation of stable chest pain. And uh, well, like I said earlier, I, I think a major, you know, major weakness of CT in, the, in these trials is that it, it does send more patients to CATH who, who probably don't need it. Uh, and FFRCT, I think, addresses that weakness in that it, you know, it helps it helps discriminate, at least in this population, it helped discriminate who actually needed the cath and who didn't. Uh, and if we could use that technology in, in patients who uh, in patients with positive CT findings, then uh, you know, I think we could make it a more efficient test. Let's finish up with a few updates on percutaneous treatments for structural heart disease. Earlier this month, we got a glimpse at the SCOUT trial testing the triline system in tricuspid valve regurgitation. This device was originally developed to treat mitral regurg, but as Yael Maxwell reported, it has been reconfigured to be used in tricuspid valve disease. The results published in JAK this month were 30-day outcomes in 15 patients from four centers. Technical success, according to lead author Rebecca Hahn, was 80%. Three patients had single-pledget annular detachments, none of which required reintervention. But in the remaining 12 patients, echocardiography showed significant reductions in multiple measures of regurgitation. Functional class and quality of life also appeared to improve. According to Han, one of the biggest barriers to moving forward in this field may not just be technology and technique. Here's what she had to say to Yao. There are significant challenges because, again, we're battling decades of training um, of the cardiologist to ignore the tricuspid valve. That's hard to reverse in a year. <laughs> you know, it's We've now got to get to the medical schools and we've got to get to the residency program in order to retrain physicians to be thinking about the tricuspid valve and to refer these patients earlier. And that, that is a difficult battle. Uh, you know, it's not one that we're going to change. Not, not, it's not a mindset that we're going to change overnight. Last but not least, let's take a moment to think about times when intervening is not the best option. From the earliest beginnings of transcatheter aortic valve replacement, at least some surgeons and interventionalists took pains to remind enthusiasts of the old adage, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Caitlin tackled this provocative topic earlier this month with a feature story we called Living or Leaving. Does palliative care deserve a place at the Taver table? Some concerns have been raised that inviting a palliative care consult during the initial heart team discussion might slow the process down. This is particularly problematic when we're talking about elderly patients with poor quality of life and limited life expectancy. But James Kirkpatrick, co-chair of the ACC's Palliative Care Working Group, 
said that while delays in care could happen if palliative care specialists are involved as an additional one-off consult, there is a strong argument for including them in the HEART team. I really hope you'll search out Caitlin's feature on TCTMD to read her thoughtful piece in full. In the meantime, here's Kirkpatrick with some food for thought. There are a lot of times that we as cardiologists don't, um, don't do a very good job of eliciting the comorbid symptoms that people are dealing with. So there are, there's a lot of osteoarthritis out there, I've found. You know, people just don't move around well when that happens. Then it has huge impacts on their cardiovascular health. But um, being able to kind of appropriately manage that with the latest um, uh, analgesics that are not going to affect the, the uh, kidney function, which is always a concern, um, is actually really important, I think, to get... To get uh, input on. And I do think there are increasingly very complicated family dynamics in regards to advanced care planning that a lot of cardiologists have not been trained to navigate well. And I think, again, if we looked, those would be, um, would, would be uncovered more often. That's a wrap for the April edition of Heart Sounds. I can't speak for the entire TCTMD team, but I can tell you in my part of the world, I'm hoping spring starts to pick up the pace a bit. And speaking of pace, things are about to start moving a lot faster on the cardiology conference front. Yael is currently wrapping up her coverage of the European Atherosclerosis Society meeting. Check out our EAS conference page for all of the news from Prague. Next, we have Laura heading off to New Orleans for the Sky Scientific Sessions, which get underway May 10th. Later in the month, you'll find me, Caitlin, Mike, and Yael at the EuroPCR meeting in Paris. If you yourself will be presenting something hot at any of these meetings, or have any other tips for us, be sure to let us know. You can find me and the rest of the news team via our bios on TCTMD, or track us down on Twitter. Over and out, April listeners. Thanks for tuning in.